<laughs> All right, let's pray and we'll get started. Hopefully we're going to complete uh, our study of life of Messiah uh, tonight. Father, we thank you for your goodness to us. We are grateful that we can reflect on the life of our Lord, on the life of our Savior, on the life of the Messiah of Israel and his first coming ministry. And we pray as we think of his resurrection and ascension, Lord, that we might rejoice in him and that we might be devoted to serve him. So God, and direct us now, we ask, for we pray in Yeshua's name. Now, we're uh, taking a look at uh, paragraph 180. We're on the bottom of page 247, and we're looking at John chapter 21 as we uh, hope to conclude the study of the life of Messiah. In paragraph 180, we have the seventh appearance of of uh, Messiah and his appearance, resurrection appearance, is to the seven. Finally, in John chapter 21, after these things, Yeshua manifested himself again to the disciples at the Sea of Tiberi- Tiberias, the Sea of Galilee. So finally, the disciples make it to the Galilee, as Yeshua has been telling them, and as the women and those that have seen him and the angels keep reminding the disciples that they are to meet him in Galilee. But they still don't understand their mission. So uh, they go back to fishing, as they are found doing here. They've been away from this business for some three years, and it appears that they have gotten a little rusty because they are fishing and um, they're not catching anything. So now this is similar to when Yeshua first called the disciples back in paragraph 41, There he said he would make them fishers of men. Now he tells them to do something that makes uh, no difference per se, but has a great consequence. And so he says to them to throw their nets on the other side. So Yeshua is on the beach. And in verse 7 he says, cast the net on the right side of the boat and you'll find some fish. Now... Immediately at that point, verse 7, the disciple thereof, whom uh, that Yeshua loved, said to Peter, it is the Lord. So John recognizes this is the Messiah. uh, Peter then, when he heard that it was the Lord, he took his coat about him, put it upon him, his robe, and he cast himself into the sea. So he jumps overboard to swim to shore. The others catch the fish. And come close to the shore. But interestingly enough, they, uh, of all, because they come about 200 cubits off, they were not far. They're dragging the net full of fish. But when they get out upon the land, they see a fire of coals and fish are already laid there as well as bread. So even though they catch 153 fish, they don't eat any of the fish that they caught. Yeshua already had fish broiling on the shore with the bread. They have a commission to fulfill, which is to go into all the world and proclaim the good news. In Acts, he's going to say, starting at Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and then to the uttermost parts of the earth, they have a commission to fulfill. And the significance of this event is that Yeshua will provide for all their needs. As they go forth to fulfill his commission to them, he will provide for them. So while they catch the fish, they don't have to eat any of the fish that they caught. Um, 
the significance of their catching the fish, they catch 153 fish because that's how many fish they caught. There's nothing significant about the number 153. Augustine, by the way, who was a real allegorist in his interpreting of Scripture, assigned all kind of significance to numbers, although there's no rationale for it other than what individuals surmise or sense. And he said that if you add up the numbers, 17, 16, 15, 14, 13, all the way down, you get 153, and attempted to make some significance out of some of those different numbers. But all of that is um, not what's here. There's no basis upon which to try to make any significance out of the number. Except to say that Yeshua caught 150, uh, that the disciples caught 153 fish. The significance, however, is that though they got 153 fish, the net didn't break. That's what's significant. Normally, with that many fish in the net, the fish could not hold them. And the whole significance is the Lord will, appro- will provide over and above whatever their needs are as they follow Him. And they will not lose or be short of having their needs met as they fulfill the commission he has given to them. In John chapter uh, 21, verse 14, this is the third time that Yeshua appeared to his disciples while they were together. There are seven appearances altogether. This is the third time that he uh, met with them while they were all together. In John chapter 15, through um, verse 17, Yeshua then has a private conversation with Peter. So when they broke their fast, Yeshua said to Peter, and he begins to ask them, I spoke a little bit on this uh, on Sunday. And he enables Peter to reaffirm his love for the Messiah in that he had previously denied him three times. And as I said on Sunday, there are two different Greek words that are found here in this text. There are four different Greek words translated love. Uh, There's the word eros, from which we get the word erotic. It's nowhere found in the New Testament, probably because of the nature of eroticism among the Romans and the Greeks in the first century. There is the word storge, which speaks of a love for a family member. There is the word phileo, which speaks of the love of a friend. And there's the word agape, or agapao, the verb form, which speaks of love for God and God's love for us, a sacrificial love. So Yeshua, when he asks in verse 15, uh, do you love me? He says, do you agapao me? Do you love me with the highest kind of love, sacrificial love, more than these? You remember that Yeshua, that Peter had said, if all of these deny you, I will never deny you. And so Yeshua then says, so do you agapao me, loving me with all of your will and sacrificially, do you love me more than these? And Peter responds, Lord, you know that I phileo you. You know that I love you as a friend. I don't love you any more than the rest of the disciples love you. I love you as a friend. And then he gives him the first commission, feed my lambs, minister to to the new believers. And interestingly enough, uh, he will write First Peter, which is meant to bring new believers into, to challenge them to become more mature. And then in verse 16, Yeshua again says a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Now he takes away the more than these and simply says, well, do you la- agapao me at, or, at all? 
you can no longer agapao me more than these others, but can you at least agapao me like the others? And Peter responds, Lord, you know that I phileo you. I cannot affirm that I agapao you. The best I can do is simply tell you that I love you as a friend. He tells him this time not to feed my sheep, but to tend my sheep. In which case he means to suggest to exercise authority and oversight over them as the chief of the apostles. And we see him doing this in the first eight chapters of the book of Acts. As he is the central figure uh, as the good news is going out to uh, Jerusalem, Judea and Samaria. It's with the calling of Paul that the gospel is going to go out into the uttermost parts of the earth and then Peter's role seems to diminish or at least the record of his role is, uh, is, is not uh, prominent. And then in verse 17, Yeshua then says, John 21 verse 17, Peter was grieved because he said unto him a third time, do you love me? This time Yeshua says, well, do you phileo me? He says, okay, you cannot agapao me more than these. You cannot agapao me as these might say they can. But can you really phileo me? Can you really love me as a friend? And Peter says, you know that I phileo you. And so then Yeshua says, feed my sheep. And as, uh, as he ministers to older believers to feed the more mature believers, he uh, writes Second Peter. In uh, John 21, verses 18 to 19, the Lord then shows him, Peter that is, that someday he will agapao Yeshua like the others because he will not die of old age, but rather as a martyr. And when he dies, he will insist, according to tradition, that he not be crucified as Yeshua was, for he would be unworthy to be crucified like him, but rather to be crucified upside down. But Yeshua is saying, you will agapao me, for you will die for me. And then in verse 21, Peter then asks about John. And Yeshua says to him, he says, Peter therefore said unto Yeshua, Lord, and what shall this man do? Speaking of John. And Yeshua said, if I will that he stays till I come, what is that to you? You are to follow me. And so he basically says, Peter is responsible for his own calling, even as John is responsible for his. And whatever his uh, calling is, that's not any concern of yours. Peter's going to die under the hands of Nero by 64 or so AD. John is going to die of old age in around 95. In uh, verse 24, um, th- this is the disciple, th- this is how John closes his appendix. His uh, gospel actually closed, his good news account closed, closed in John chapter 20, verse 31, where he says, Many other signs therefore did Yeshua in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But, if, but these are written that you may believe that Yeshua is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. Then he adds the section in chapter 21 that we have been looking at, which is a concluding appendix, you might say. Now in verse 24, he draws this to a close. And he says, this is the disciple which bears witness of these things. So John 
testifies that he's an eyewitness. Again, he says, no one could write all everything that Yeshua did. Yeshua lived about 36, 37 years of age or so. And when we look and count the days that are on record, we have somewhere around 75 to 80 days recorded in the life of Messiah in the gospel records. And yet, what John tells, and, and so what John tells us is, if he could write the full record, which he isn't able to, the books of the world couldn't contain them because of all the things Yeshua had done. If all the things that are written here are as significant as they are and as full and complete, and it is simply recording 75 or 80 days, imagine what would have been written if everything that was recorded in these 75 or 80 days, and then we'd have to add all the other days that aren't even mentioned. So it's rather significant ministry. Well, they don't all cover the same events. Right, because first of all, that's when they're called. They're called at the tail end of his life, the last three and a half years of ministry. But he's, he's been engaged in ministry, not in public ministry, but those three and a half years. So they're recording basically what they were eyewitnesses to. But the bulk of their record is the last week of Yeshua's ministry. I mean, in John's account, it's half his gospel is the last week. In the other accounts, it's the majority. So they're very particular about what is paramount in the life of Messiah. And that's what they're recording. But if they were to record more, as John says, uh, the books of the world couldn't contain them. And we have quite a bit of things here in the records uh, that we have. In uh, paragraph 181, we find in this section that Yeshua appeared to uh, 500 at one time, including the uh, apostolic uh, members. So in 1 Corinthians, we have in uh, chapter 1 Corinthians 15, he appeared to 500. And of those he appeared to, the greater number still remain and have not died. So Paul's point is you could talk to eyewitnesses about what they experienced, what they saw. Up until the time of 1 Corinthians, which is written around 51, there still was a greater number of the 500 that were still alive. We find in this section also the second of Yeshua's final commissions. If you look at Matthew chapter 28, verse 18, he says, All authority has been given unto me in heaven and on earth. First of all, the word for authority is exousia, delegated authority, has been given to the resurrected Son of God. All authority has been delegated unto him, both on, in heaven and on earth. Second thing he points out is in verse 19. They are to make disciples. This is the only imperative in this section. The imperative is not to go, but the imperative is to make disciples. The going, the immersing, baptizing, and the teaching are present participles. And so the meaning is, we are commanded to make disciples. And so the point is that as we live our life, as we go, we are to be making disciples, we're to evangelize. As we are immersing those who come to faith, 
we are to do that in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So there is a triadic formula for immersion. We don't just immerse in the name of the Son. We're particularly instructed in the name. What's interesting also about this, because it speaks to the triunity of God, notice he does not say we are to baptize in the names, plural, of the Father, Son. It is the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Why? Because there's one God, though he exists in three persons. And we are to be teaching them to observe all the things that the Lord, Messiah, has commanded them. So our command is to make disciples. Every individual believer is to be a disciple maker. We are to be engaged with people. We are to be encountering individuals and helping them live the life of faith more fully than they might otherwise because of our involvement in their lives. How do we make disciples? First of all, we are to be um, evangelizing. We are to be proclaiming the good news. Secondly, we are to be immersing. The significance of immersing is not for salvation, but it is so as to be identified formally and publicly with the Messiah whom they've come to believe in. So in the first century, immersion was almost immediate. Every instance we have of immersions in the book of Acts are at the very moment they make a profession of faith. But in the first century, things were a lot clearer than they are now. We don't have multiplicity of denominations. We don't even, today we have a variety of different interpretations about the significance, mode, and time when individuals are to be immersed. So today, it probably is not a wise idea to be immersing individuals at the very moment they make a profession of faith. It's probably wiser today, given the complexity of theological issues that have emerged since the first century, to sit down and instruct individuals and to make sure that they understand more fully than they might what they have come to embrace, who they have come to embrace and uh, recognize as Messiah. It doesn't mean that the instruction has to go on for years, but there ought to be some explanation of what's going on because of the difference of culture and time. And this is particularly true of Jewish individuals because today baptism to the Jewish people does not mean what it meant to them in the first century. In the first century, it did not have the connotation of leaving anything with respect to who they were as Jews. Today, what you hear all the time is if we baptize, you're no longer a Jew. So it's important for us to instruct Jewish believers that by being immersed does not do anything to, with respect to your identity as a Jew. And in the first century, that never would have been an issue. It certainly, it would have been understood that these individuals are disciples of this Jewish Messiah whom we don't believe, but they never would have thought that this uh, immersion suggests that they're no longer Jews because of it. So um, we're to make disciples, and there is a sense in which individuals who are followers of Messiah, if they have not been immersed, and if they are not taught, they're not truly disciples yet. They may be followers, they may be adherents, but they're not disciples in the fullest sense of the word until they do three things. Make a profession of faith, have an understanding by being taught about their faith, and have moved to that point where they are being immersed and they understand most fully what that immersion signifies with regard to their relationship to Messiah. When those three things have occurred, then we are truly the disciples of Messiah as he instructs his disciples 
to do here in Matthew chapter 28. Thirdly, if you look at Mark 16, now before I read these verses, we need to understand that Mark chapter 16, verses 16 through the end of his gospel is not found in the oldest manuscripts. And so to build a case or a theological truth on the basis of these passages would, would not be wise. Because they're not in our oldest manuscripts. They could have been additions by later uh, scribes and copiers, copyists of Scripture. Remember, the Bible we have in our hand is not the original manuscripts, right? No original manuscripts remain. We don't have the writings of Paul. We don't have the writings of Matthew. We don't have the writings of Mark. We have manuscript copies of what was written. How do we know what was written is a significant and most accurate assessment of what the original writings were? Well, that is a very significant scientific study in and of itself. But given the multiplicity of manuscripts, over 5,000, given their wide distribution over the continents of North Africa, uh, Asia Minor in the Middle East and Europe, and given the uh, age of these manuscripts, we have a very high level of, uh, of uh, testimony that the translations that we have in our hands is an accurate manifestation of what the apostles originally wrote. Now, if we didn't have, and this is, a, this is an involved study in itself, and I want to get it off on it, I just want you to realize that when I make this statement, we don't have original manuscripts. There is a sense in which we don't need original manuscripts in order to recreate what the original manuscripts consisted of because of the number of manuscript copies of the originals we have, or I should say, manuscripts we have. Not all the manuscripts were copied from the originals. An original might have been written, a scribe is copying it, he may pass on his copy for another scribe to copy. And thus, the third copyist is not copying the original, he's copying the copy of the original. And the reason why we can be assured that the, the manuscripts we have are accurate uh, reflections of the original manuscripts is because we have so many. And the differences that are found in these manuscripts are negligible. There are differences, to be sure. But those differences either do not affect significant theological issues or historical events or uh, call into question the character of Messiah as the bulk of material about which there aren't a lot of discrepancies. But if we did not have even those manuscripts, if we didn't have the originals, which we don't have, and if we don't have the manuscripts, the early church fathers quoted the scriptures, copies per se, so frequently we can, in effect, reconstruct the New Testament writings without either the originals or the manuscripts. So that's high testimony to the scriptures we have in our hand. Having said that, there are passages in the Bible which are found in manuscripts, but not the oldest or the most reliable. And therefore, to build a theological case on those passages is not wise. There are churches and denominations that do, but it wouldn't be a wise thing to do. Mark chapter 16, verses 16 to the end, those verses are not found in the most ancient manuscripts and therefore are not passages that we should uh, build uh, 
theological truths around. Mitch. Uh, I think it's Mark 16, 9 through the end. Ah, uh, okay. Yeah. Fair uh, enough. Did you not make a reference to another passage that wasn't in the oldest manuscripts a few minutes ago? Yeah, well, John, John chapter 8, the woman taken oh, the in woman, adultery. Yeah, yeah. That's not in the oldest Correct. manuscripts. There's Correct. nothing about that story that is out of character with Yeshua, right. but it's not in our oldest manuscripts. Old. So it may have been an insertion by a scribe, a story that was told, but the oldest manuscripts don't have it. Now, one can add, well, that doesn't mean it wasn't in the originals. Well, that's true. It could have been in the originals and the oldest manuscripts that we have, for whatever reason, didn't record that event. We don't know why. On the other hand, since we, don't, we can't explain that, we don't need to build a case on that passage. If we don't have it, it doesn't change anything. It doesn't change, it's just a story we all like, but it doesn't have, it's not as if there Yeshua says, the Father and I are not one. You know, it's just a story of a woman taken in adultery who he forgives. Well, if we don't have that story, we still know Yeshua forgives people. So it's not critical. If you look at John chapter 7, you take out that story of the woman taken in adultery and you go to the next verse, the passage certainly makes better sense. Because in John 7, you have the Feast of Tabernacles. Then you have the woman taken in adultery, not in the oldest manuscripts. And then it says, I am the light of the world. And the Feast of Tabernacles was a festival that was celebrated with the uh, with menorahs that were established in the temple that were well lit. So you would expect to go from the Feast of Tabernacles to a focus on the menorahs that were placed in the temple. And thus he would say, I am the light of the world. And the conversation or his presentation continues with the Feast of Tabernacles in mind. But what you, we have in our scripture, and you can look at it, is you got the Feast of Tabernacles, an insertion of a woman taken in adultery, and then you're back to the Feast of Tabernacles. So, most likely, that event is not in the original manuscripts. At least, given our present evidence, we'd have to conclude that. Same thing with John 16, verses 9 to the end. Uh, Mark 16, 19. Mar uh, Mark 16. Uh, another passage that's important is when the disciples could not cast out the demon, Jesus said, in, most, in the versions we have today, right. and I come out prayer, and, prayer fasting. and fasting. Fasting is not in the oldest manuscript. That's right. Yeah. Okay. So, but we're going to look at Mark here for a moment. In Mark verse 16, he, this would be a third part of this commission. There are five parts. One, all authority is given to Yeshua. Number two, make disciples. Number three, he says, those, uh, he that believes and is baptized shall be saved, but he that disbelieves shall be condemned. Um, this is not, even if we take this passage, this passage does not teach in the necessity to be baptized to be saved. The point is that those who follow through in their faith will be saved, and those who do not follow through, as immersion signifies a following through in one's faith, would not be saved. Only unbel unbelief condemns a person. Therefore, immersion is not necessary uh, for salvation. And that's not what verse 16 is meant to say. The other argument one could use is it's not in the oldest manuscripts of Mark and therefore we shouldn't make a case out of this passage to suggest the necessity for baptism. Uh, I have some, some uh, thoughts as well on passages in Acts where you have the same thing. What's interesting is that the two passages in the book of Acts that deal with baptism and salvation, Acts 2.38, Acts 22.16, if you read it carefully, you'll notice in both passages it's addressed to Jews. 
And it's addressed to the generation of Jews that were guilty of the unpardonable sin back in paragraph 61 and therefore facing the final judgment of A.D. 70. So when he says in Acts 2.38 and Acts 22.16 that if you're baptized, you'll be saved, he's not talking about salvation in the sense of spiritual salvation. He's talking about salvation from the coming destruction that will occur when Rome sacks the city of Jerusalem and destroys the temple. Because if you believe in Yeshua and you follow through in your belief as evidenced by immersion, you'll remember that when Yeshua says, when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, flee to the mountains, your devotion to Yeshua will take precedent of your devotion to your people and you'll leave Jerusalem and flee and thus you'll be spared, you'll be saved, you'll be delivered from the coming judgment that will hit this generation. So the passages in 238 that say, uh, believe and be immersed, the idea is believe and follow through in your belief by being fully identified with Messiah through immersion and do not turn back on that and then um, connect yourself with the Jewish leaders who have led the people to reject Messiah and incur the final judgment in A.D. 70. And so those Jews that did not identify with Messiah and follow through with him stayed in the city when Jerusalem was attacked by the Romans and they perished. Those Jews that did believe in Messiah were immersed and thus followed through in their faith and obeyed Yeshua who said when Jerusalem is surrounded by armies flee, they would flee and they would be spared. That's what those passages are about. They're not saying you need to believe and then you need to be baptized. Otherwise, you won't be saved. That's just contrary to everything the scripture has said. We're saved by, by faith, uh, by grace, through faith, and this is not of yourselves. There's no mens mens mention of needing to be baptized. Yeshua himself never says that. So what is the connection between salvation and baptism? Salvation is accepting Messiah recognizing the death, burial, and resurrection, inviting him into your life, and you are saved from eternal peril. You follow, now, in the first century, those Jews who were now under the judgment that would hit Jerusalem because of the national rejection, if you followed through in your faith, as evidenced by your being publicly immersed, and therefore everyone knows you're, you're identified with Messiah, when Jerusalem is about to go under... Follow through in your faith. Don't listen to the Jewish leaders that say, stay put, stay here. But remember what Yeshua said, flee. You'll obey him rather than others. You'll flee the city and you will be saved. That's what Acts 2.38 and Acts 22.16 is referring to. Not salvation from sin, but salvation from the judgment that will fall on Israel because of the national rejection of Messiah. I want to say uh, a few more things about that in conclusion. But that's Mark 16. We can, uh, so when people say no, it says you've got to believe and be baptized. Two ways to respond. Number one, it's not in the ancient manuscripts. Therefore, it is not a passage to have a case built on. Second is, there's no passage that speaks about the necessity to be baptized to be saved. And number three, the salvation about which these passages speak is not salvation from sin, but salvation from the judgment that will hit Jerusalem in this generation because of the national rejection of Messiah. And then in Mark verse 17, he then says, these are the signs that will follow those that believe. 
He says, first of all, they will cast out demons. Now, notice, Yeshua doesn't say, these are the signs that will follow every individual that does these things. He's not saying every believer can do this. But he is saying, in general, the body of believers will experience this. Um, now, again, one can argue this is in the ancient manuscripts, and therefore we should not expect this to be a part of what goes on in the body today. And uh, that's one way to handle this. Another way is uh, to recognize that th these are not signs that will accompany every believer, but will accompany the body of believers in general, and has been seen to have occurred through the book of Acts and in some other instances. Whether or not it occurs today, that's debated among believers. But notice what he does say. They will cast out demons, but we don't know Mark to tell us that. We've got instances of things happening in the, in the epistles and so on. Um, secondly, they will speak with new languages. We see that in the book of Acts. Um, but again, he doesn't say every believer will cast out demons. Every believer will speak in new languages. But there, these signs or these things will be experienced. He says they will be healed of serpent bites. Well, we uh, f we've see that in uh, the Hebrew Scriptures where Moses prays. Everyone that looks at the staff, they're healed of... Uh, of those fiery serpents, but that's not an indication to say, oh, any one of us could, like some in West Virginia, the snake handlers, you know, that say if you really have faith, you can handle these snakes. You know, and they do this on the basis of Mark 17. And the same thing, and if they, uh, 16, <laughs> and if they drink any deadly thing, it shall in no wise hurt them. Well, he's not saying that's going to happen in every instance. But um, perhaps it has. We have no record of that happening anywhere in the, in the scriptures. And I don't know any record of it happening even among the church fathers or any of the ancient uh, historical writings. And uh, I would not advise testing us. And uh, in Matthew 20, the fifth thing he says, he promises. Oh, and, they, and then he also says that they will lay hands on the sick and they shall recover. He doesn't say in every instance that's going to be the case. But it will occur in, in the body of believers. And then in Matthew verse 20, uh, the last thing he says about this commission is, He would be with them always. And lo, I am with you always. So when you take your flight somewhere, uh, the promise is no longer relevant. But uh, that was just a dry, dry humor. An attempt at some dry humor. Oh, thank you. I appreciate that. And lo, I am with you always even unto the end of the age. And so Messiah will always be with us. In, verse, uh, in paragraph 182, we have the ninth appearance of Messiah. This time he appears to James, the half-brother of Yeshua, uh, along with Judas, Jude, Jude uh, Judah, the, book, the writer of the book of Jude. Uh, these are two half-brothers of, uh, of Yeshua, half-brothers, because Messiah... Uh, was born of Mary only, but these, uh, his half-brothers were born of Mary and um, Joseph. And James, or Yaakov, becomes the head of the first congregation in Jerusalem. And uh, he is, there are actually two apostolic groups in Scripture. There is, first of all, the uh, first apostolic group, which are the eleven that the Lord a call, 12 originally, but then 11 and Mattathias who replaces him. That's your first 
apostolic group. The second apostolic group are those that are limited to having seen the resurrected Messiah. And we have two. Paul in Acts chapter 9 who saw him and James as we read here. That is why I do not believe we have apostles today. And uh, there's only two groups of them. The ones called by Messiah and Mattathias who replaced him and James and Paul as uh, we read here. Uh, Today there are no apostles. Um, These were gifts to the body but that doesn't mean in every age they exist. Now I know some try to redefine apostle as the word means sent one and so they look at missionaries or church planters as apostles but I think that's a diluting of the significance of the word or the term as it's used of these very select unique individuals in the founding of the body of Messiah and their early ministry. Yeshua must appear to them and uh, it must be uh, verifiable and so here what we have is the scripture is test the inspired word of God. Paul is telling us he appeared to James and then to all the uh, the apostles. In paragraph 183, we have the tenth appearance of Messiah to the eleven. Um, and in verse 44, we find two in Luke's account and in the book of Acts two things Yeshua focuses on during the post resurrection ministry. It's a ministry that lasts for 40 days, uh, as we read in Acts. And uh, by the way, we have Luke chapter 24, verses 44 to 49, and Acts chapter 1. Both are written by the same author. And in fact, it, it, it is thought that Luke's account is actually Luke slash Acts, that he wrote the book of Luke Acts. And it's one continued narrative. They're not two separate books, actually. It's the testimony as Luke uh, writes of it, of Yeshua's ministry and his continued ministry through his apostles. And that's why Luke is the author of these two books. So it's really one book. We've, uh, we've placed them in the order that we have them, putting the Gospels together and then the book of Acts. But Luke is the one that's writing both books. And it's interesting, in paragraph 183, we've got... Luke's two writings put together, uh, Luke 24 and Acts chapter 1. And two things he focuses on, Luke verse 44, chapter 24. And he said unto them, These are my words which I spoke unto you while I was with you, how that all things must needs be fulfilled which are written in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. So the first thing is that he focuses on is messianic prophecy. Verse 44, then opened he, then he opened their minds that they might understand the scriptures. So at this point, the illuminating work of the Holy Spirit comes into play. The Messiah opens his, their minds and they now understand the biblical, the Hebrew scriptures and what they taught. Notice the threefold division of the Hebrew scriptures. The Tanakh. T, remember in Hebrew there are no vowels. So Tanakh, we put the vowels in, but it would be T-N-C-H, right? We just put a vowel, E and A. But Tanakh is T, N, and the C-H, which is the Kaf in Hebrew. So the T stands for the Tuf, from which we get the word Torah. So the Old Testament scriptures, the Hebrew scriptures, are made up of three entities. The Torah, T, in Tanakh stands for Torah, the law, the five books of Moses. 
The N stands for the Nevi'im, the prophets, which in Jewish uh, terminology stands for the former and latter prophets. The former prophets are what we more often than not think of as the historical books. So the books of like Joshua and uh, Judges, 1st, 2nd Samuel, 1st, 2nd Kings, books of Chronicles. Um, these historical books are considered the former or early prophets. The later prophets are what we think of as major and minor. There's no distinction among um, the, uh, the prophets. The, in the Jewish tradition, we have the prophets and then the twelve. But they're not divided up in the sense of major and minor. When we say major and minor, we don't mean with regard to their substance. We mean with regard to their length. So because Isaiah is 66 books, whereas Hosea is, what, 14 or something like that, 12 or 14, 66, that's a major work, 14 is a minor work. So it only has to do not with the level of inspiration, not with the level of quality or significance or importance, but with respect to its length, how long it is. So by major prophets, the Jewish people mean, or the Jewish tradition means, Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel. By the twelve, they mean the minor prophets as we have them. So you have the Torah, as Yeshua makes reference to it, the law of Moses. You have the Nevi'im, the prophets, as Yeshua makes reference, which would be the former and latter prophets, the historical books, as well as what we think of as major and minor prophets with the exclusion of Daniel and Lamentations. And then you have the writings. I said the Tanakh, you got the T sound, the tough, the N sound, the Nun, and then you have the Kuf sound that has the K sound, sort of like a hard uh, guttural for Ketuvim. And the Ketuvim stands for writings or the more poetry books. So the books that are included there are like your Psalms, Proverbs, Job, Daniel, um, um, Song of Solomon. So when we read here that Yeshua taught them of himself in the scriptures, Messianic prophecy, in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the writings, he's saying the entirety of the Hebrew scriptures. And then he opened their minds to understand it. And that's why later in the book of Acts, it will say they were perceived as ones who had spent time with Yeshua because they were not learned men. They had not studied in the yeshiva. They were fishermen. But the Lord opened their minds to understand all this stuff he was sharing them. And they now shared it. And they saw that they were biblically literate and beyond that, really, as they shared with uh, the Jewish community. If it's a kaf for ketuvim, why do people give it the yuvilach? Uh, uh, what do you mean? What do they oh, oh uh, well. Instead of tanakh. Yeah, because... The final cuff yeah. is, uh, it's really a, a hard guttural. So it's like Tanakh. So it's, but it's hard for us in the West to pronounce Kituvim. Um, well, you wouldn't pronounce it Kituvim. You, 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 would. you, you would not. You would not, no. Because it's at the front end of Correct. the word. So a, f a final cuff is always a chaf. Right. Okay. Right. Okay. So uh, now we're coming to, so that's paragraph 183. Um, the second thing, two things, he focuses on Messianic prophecy. And the second thing 
as recorded in Acts chapter 1, the focus is on the kingdom of, of the messianic kingdom program, uh, though not for them to know the times, it doesn't mean that it won't occur. So in Acts chapter 1, they therefore, when he was with them, asked them, saying, Lord, do you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? And he said, he didn't say, no, there is no such kingdom to restore. That would have been a perfect time to explain to the disciples that this idea of a messianic kingdom lasting a thousand years, literally on earth, you guys don't understand, that's not what was meant. The kingdom that was meant was a spiritual kingdom which I would reign in their hearts. That would, this would be a perfect time for him to have set the record straight and said that. But he doesn't say that. Why doesn't he say that? Because the kingdom about which the Lord will establish is not merely a kingdom in the hearts of individuals. It is a literal kingdom that he will establish and he'll reign on David's throne from Jerusalem. That's why he says unto them, it is not for you to know when the Father is going to establish the kingdom. You don't need to know the times or seasons which the Father has set within his own authority. But what you're to be about is the receiving of power from the Spirit of God to be my witnesses. And you are to be my witnesses in the following locations. Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the uttermost parts of the earth. So there is a messianic kingdom, but you're, it's, it's not for you to know. It's not necessary that you know when the kingdom will dawn. And then he gives them the third of the three final commissions. He tells them that they are to remain in Jerusalem before he told them to go to Galilee. Now he tells them, go to Jerusalem and stay there. Well, they obey that command. They do go to Jerusalem. They spend, what, 120 days or so in the upper room waiting for the Spirit of God to descend as Messiah's gift to them. So they are to remain in Jerusalem till the Spirit of God comes. When the Spirit comes, it will mean three things. First of all, it will mean a new ministry of the Spirit. Because now the Spirit will... There's five very different ministries that the Spirit is engaged in. He regenerates. It is the Spirit of God that awakens our dead uh, part, our immaterial part, our soul. It's the Spirit of God that regenerates our soul, makes us alive unto God. That's the work of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit, another work of the Holy Spirit is that He fills each believer to fill means he controls. So believers that yield to him, he will fill, he will control. So that's why we are commanded to be filled with the Spirit. Why? Because there will be times when we are not filled with the Spirit. Being filled with the Spirit is temporary. It is not permanent. The filling of the Spirit occurs when the, an individual is, is yielded to the Lord and is uh, embarking on fulfilling the calling Messiah may have for him. So there is the ministry of, of uh, filling. There is the ministry of regenerating. There is the ministry of giving gifts to each of the individuals. So that's another ministry of the Holy Spirit. That's why they're called gifts of the Spirit. It is he who entrusts to us according to his will what gifts he would give us. It is for us to discover them, to utilize them, and to serve one another with, and ultimately to bring glory to God by. So one of the gifts or ministries of the Spirit is to regenerate. 
another is to, um, uh, to fill, another is to give gifts to the body of believers, uh, another is that the Spirit would come into the world to convict the world of sin. He convicts us so that we might uh, know the truth and come to Him. And, of course, another uh, work of the Holy Spirit is the sealing work of the Holy Spirit, as Paul makes reference in Ephesians, that we are sealed by the Holy Spirit until the day of redemption. The fact that we are secure in our faith is the result of the work of the Holy Spirit who seals us. And there's also the baptizing work of the Holy Spirit. The baptizing work of the Holy Spirit is like water baptism. When a person is baptized in, or immersed in water, he is identifying himself with something. So in the case of John's ministry, when, we are, when the disciples, whoever was immersed by John, they were identifying themselves with John's back-to-God movement. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That's why Yeshua can submit to it. He is in no need of repenting of sin because he's never sinned. But he does identify with John's ministry for John is the herald of the king and he's the king whom John is heralding. So he submits to his baptism as a means by which he identifies publicly and authenticates John's heralding ministry. When individuals, as we just read, are made disciples and are immersed unlike John's baptism, are immersed in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That's not how John baptized. He baptized unto repentance, knowing that the kingdom of heaven is at hand. We're not called to baptize that way. We're called to immerse people in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It's a different kind of baptism. Why? Because that water baptism is an identification not with John's back-to-God movement, although we agree with him, but it is a, a, an immersion in identifying ourselves with the death, burial, resurrection of Messiah. That's why we are immersed in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. To identify with the full-orbed ministry of Messiah that he has completed. Now here in Acts, the baptizing work of the Holy Spirit is another kind of baptism. But the same meaning must be attached to baptism. It is not, baptism is not a second work of grace subsequent to salvation. It occurs at the moment of salvation, and like water baptism, it serves to identify us with the body of believers. The baptizing work of the Holy Spirit in Acts 2 was meant to create the body of believers. And the baptizing or immersing work of the Holy Spirit creates now the body of Messiah. That's why Yeshua said, wait in Jerusalem, the Spirit will come, He will immerse you in